the future has arrived. As the world and humanity itself moves faster and faster into unimaginable possibilities, old institutions that built connection and shaped our sense of meaning are falling by the wayside. In their wake, profound questions about ethics, our purpose, and spirituality demand new answers. Join your host, Scott Mason, in Season 2 of the Purpose Highway Podcast. We will explore how these social changes will revolutionize our society. We will learn how they impact our own search for connection and meaning. And we will hear stories of influencers whose lives have had radical change from the inside. And found profound connection to others and themselves through a new definition of meaning. The future has arrived. Are you ready? When you're racing down the Purpose Highway, we want to make sure you're healthy and happy every step of the way. That's why we're proud to partner with It's NOLA, 21st century plant-based healthy granola snack bites made with real ingredients and audacious flavor. It's NOLA crafts small batch hand-rolled granola balls that are vegan, gluten-free, and naturally low in sugar. It's NOLA's delightful bites come in three flavors. Luscious cranberry coconut, sassy mango masala, and dark, decadent, chewy chocolate. It's NOLA is available to both individual customers and for wholesale accounts at itsnola.com. That's I-T-S-N-O-L-A dot com. Guests on this show are already enjoying this delicious snack. Check out It's NOLA's website for yourself and find out how good it is. Hello, everybody. It's Scott Mason revving up for another race down the Purpose Highway. Now, if you like what we're doing, be sure to subscribe and give us a thumbs up on YouTube or a review on Apple. In the meantime, sitting next to me in the front seat is Catherine Bell. Catherine, y'all are going to love this, is a trained astrophysicist with a BA from Williams College and both an MS and a PhD from UC Santa Cruz. How is that for a mic drop? So impressive. But she ain't doing that no more. Today, she is a dream work practitioner and is the founder of Experiential Dream Work. She's also a podcaster and on the board of directors, the ethics committee and the conference planning committee of the International Association for the study of dreams. She's facilitated dream groups for over 20 years and has been a dream coach for nearly a decade. Catherine, people have always told me that I have had a diverse career, but you got me capped. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. So glad to be here, Scott. Fabulous. It's an honor to have you. Mm-hmm. Catherine, before we get into the meat of the background, we're going to talk a little bit about symbolism today. Now, I assume that we can agree that, at least on some level, 
dreams can be symbolic. Am I totally crazy here? Oh, yeah. No, that's, that's exactly right. There, There's many levels, and one of them is a symbolic level. I can't wait to talk about all that. <laughs> I will not lie. The great sci-fi author Gene Wolfe was right when he said, as much as we create symbols, they create us, too. They define who we are. They build our futures. And that's why I focus so much on mythology in this show. It symbolizes our norms, our, our personal journeys, our identities, our history, and so much more. So in that spirit, I asked you pre-show what Greek god or goddess was a good symbol for you. And you gave a truly unique answer. Persephone. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about Persephone and what she represents to you. Of course, yeah. So I, I love this premise, Scott, about I want to, there's a quote by Carl Jung where he says that uh, dreams are personal myths mm -hmm. and, and myths are cultural dreams. Wow. So there's a way, if I can get that right, you got to check me on that. But basically the, the myth is like the dream of the culture. And so we use the myths to define our culture the way we use our dreams to define our personal mm -hmm. experience of life. And for me, Persephone is, is a really key myth in that this is a young girl. She's the daughter of Demeter, who is mm -hmm. the, uh, um, the goddess of, of the crops and the sort of the agrarian goddess who, who looks over the agriculture. And her daughter is out, um, her daughter Persephone is out in the fields collecting flowers. She's a, she's like a teenager or some, some, uh, young adult and um and Hades comes up through the earth he comes up through a crack in the earth yeah. and captures her and takes her to the underworld mm -hmm. now her um, mother is devastated and mm -hmm. she makes all the crops stop growing and winter mm -hmm. comes to the land for the first time ever winter didn't even exist before mm -hmm. this moment and Demeter is so devastated that she goes to Zeus and asks Zeus to uh to tell Hades his brother, Zeus and Hades are the brothers, to give her daughter back. Uh, but Hades is, loves Persephone and won't give her back. And yeah. so they come to an agreement where uh, Persephone spends six months underground and six months above ground. And during the six months underground, that's when we have winter. Uh, and when she's above, that's when we have summer. So that's the mythology of that. But this is from the point of view of the mother, the de point of view of Demeter and of society. But look at this myth from the point of view of Persephone. So, you know, I'm a young girl. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm maturing. I'm, I'm curious about the world, but my mother is very protective. She's keeping me, you know, uh, confined and I have to only play with my, you know, my female friends. And I want to go out in the world and I'm, I'm collecting flowers. And then this man, this gorgeous man comes up out of the earth and seduces me. And it's like, wow, I have never like fallen in love before. And I go with him. And it, when I go down, I become the queen of the underworld. Mm. And so there's something about that. I get to choose for myself where I go and, and who I love. You know, this is from the, wow. from the cultural point of view, it's regarded as a rape or as like a, a um, as, as being, as being her being captured and, and right. taken underground. But from her point of view, maybe, you know, this is the question. And from me, it's like, this is how I get away from my family of origin, how I get to create my own world. 
the world that I want to create. And it's underground, which for me is very powerful mm -hmm. since the subconscious is something that I uh, have found to be an amazing place to be and to explore. I absolutely love it. There's a couple of things in there that I just want to touch on. One is a little bit personal. I don't know if I mentioned this to you or not, but my personal Greek god avatar is actually involved in this myth. Huh? My personal Greek god avatar is Helios, the god of the sun. Yes. And the person that gives up Hades and Persephone is the sun because he saw everything. He was literally flying over the earth. And it's interesting because... From that perspective, Helios was the god of oaths. You could not get away with a lie under him because he saw everything being the sun. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, looking at that in light of the symbolism you just talked about, culturally, he was exposing the truth about this kidnapping that had occurred and allowing Demeter to get her child back. But thinking about it another way, through the lens of what you just said, and I honestly never thought about this before. He actually was an agent of taking away something that Persephone may have had. He was a tattletale. He was representing mm -hmm. uh, social forces. Yeah. He wasn't an Olympian, but he was of the prior generation, the primal forces, the Titans. He was a force that aligned himself with the Olympians to take back um, this, this, inheritance that Persephone may have wanted for herself. There's also a generational issue here because uh, in Greek myth, there is an association between generations and overthrow. And mm -hmm. so I almost have to wonder too, if there could be some symbolism around Persephone gaining her own world and her own self, overthrowing the uh, potentially uh, symbolically overthrowing the rule of her own mother. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of richness there. If you have anything you want to say about all oh, that. Well, I want to say, don't be so hard on yourself. <laughs> as, you know, as Helios, you're the truth teller. You're just saying what I saw. This is what I like we do in this podcast. I'm mm. saying what I saw. And it was really the Olympians who decided to only pay attention to Demeter. Nobody mm -hmm. asked Persephone. It was the Olympians. Who, it's true. Who, you know, it's like, it's, there's, there's, yeah, uh, that, that we like, we're always so interested in, punishing the uh, perpetrators like Hades in this case. But what about the victim? What is the, you know, the victim and whether, are you actually a victim or not? Mm -hmm. Do we check with the people who have, you know, who have been wronged and find mm -hmm. out if they really have been wronged? We don't, they never ask. I mean, this is something I'm all over culturally is, is like, do we really check with the victims and you know, are they getting what they need? And, you know, in this case is what do you really want? Yeah. Yeah powerful. And you are right. Persephone would have been the queen of the underworld back during the other six months. She would have been on Olympus, kind of a nobody. I mean, she certainly didn't have a throne. Yep. That's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I, I absolutely love that. Incredible. Let's talk briefly about another type of symbol. Mm -hmm. Once upon a time, you had a dream about zebras. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and what it might have meant? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> I love this. I'm laughing because zebras are such a thing. Um, you, you see, I have my little zebras over there. I got a zebra. I have zebras like all over the house, and yet it was one tiny little dream that I had that led to this this huge like this 
claiming of the zebras with totem animals. It's on my webpage, you know, I have people give me zebras. There's a, there, okay, so what, what it was, it was just the, the dream was super simple that I'm standing on a savanna and in front of me yeah. are two zebras and I can see their backs. I can see their, their side facing opposite directions and I can just see their backs and they're like 10 feet away. And, and there's maybe some other zebras. And I'm like, that was the entire dream. That just that one view. Wow. But what what made that dream so powerful is that I took that dream to a retreat where I was doing this dream work mm-hmm. um, with uh, Bill Sancier and Susan Scabo, who are uh, students of the dream. And they they asked me, so what is it like to be standing there with those zebras? Just put yourself in that moment. And, you know, we had two people stand up and be the zebras. And I'm like. Oh, interesting, because they're not even paying attention to me. They're looking the other direction. Usually you see zebras and they're like, yeah, you know, they're like, what's over there? But these guys are relaxed. So there's like something about like I'm part of the tribe, like I'm part of the herd. And so Mm. I got this sense that this that this is like a sense of belonging, which is so new to me that I had been so lonely and so unhappy for so many years, feeling like I just had to struggle through life, that this was a beginning when I started to recognize that I could feel the sense of belonging and the herd that was unfolding around me was my dream community and that I really... Like in the moment of the retreat, the people there playing the part of the zebras, like those individuals were my community. I could, you know, the names of those people were people that I care about. And I just, the word dazzle is like what they use a dazzle of zebras. Yeah. is like a group, like a pride of lions. And so I just was dazzled by this, this sudden realization is like, oh my goodness, I'm starting to know what it feels like to belong. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, that struggle to try and fit your life goals and objectives, your professional experience, your skills into boxes that other people have set for you or into mythological frameworks that you may have developed for yourself based on social expectations or the myths that others may have told you about yourself and that you've absorbed is something you and I have in common and that I am sure a lot of our listeners or viewers have in common with you. So I'm so glad you shared that bit of your personal history because it may really help people and it will open a lot of doors as this conversation goes on. I'm really excited to hear that. But before we start to walk down those roads, why do you think zebras were representing you in particular? Why not water buffalo or eagles or, or right, right. why not eels? I mean, yeah. well, that's where you get into symbolism, which is mm-hmm. something you were asking about, and that there's something very particular about the the symbol of a zebra, which um, which for me is uh, is very powerful. They are they are horse like. But they are never ridden as the way horses are ridden because they're fierce. They don't like to be ridden. They can't really be tamed. And that, you know, over, you know, thousands of years, humans have learned to tame horses, but they've, they've tried to tame zebras, but they're, they're yeah. not rideable. And so there's a way that wow. this fierceness mm-hmm. and the way that, that really speaks to me, this fierceness is like, I don't want to be saddled. I have been saddled much of my life and I'm done with it. <laughs> I'm over it. And the group that I have around me is the ones that I choose, the people that I 
want to be with. And, and the zebra community, they say that the stripes of the zebras are to confuse predators because mm -hmm. if they're running in different directions, the, the stripes make it hard for the predator to pick out one particular zebra. Oh, fascinating. So the, so they help each other and they just by who they are, they uh, uh, they can protect each other and and, uh, and and save each other from and the from the, uh, the predators. Incredible. I mm -hmm. absolutely love it. Thank you for that. Talk to us a little bit in light of the fact that we have sort of dazzled our way <laughs> into the topic about what exactly existential dream work is that has the feel of a cool sounding but nonetheless five dollars <laughs> word to my simple little ears I, i'm i'm wilting in my suspenders what, <laughs> what which are like zebra stripes uh, but anyway, <laughs> talk to us explain explain yeah. please <laughs> okay so i've heard existential and experimental mental but actually it's experiential and so okay, it's because gotcha. it, it's, a, it's a $10 word. It's like one of those big <laughs> long words. But the, for me, it has to do with the experience. It's experiential dream work. And that I, I take the point of view that the dream is something that happened to me. And it, 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 it doesn't need to be analyzed mm. or broken down any more than like, oh, I saw my friend on the street. Like that's something that happened to me. It was an experience that I had. And so I, I have a resistance to interpreting dreams. I I don't I don't even like the word interpretation, dream interpretation. Although people kind of use that word because they don't know what else to say. Mm -hmm. But I, I think of it as dream basking, like you know, like hmm. basking in the sunshine. Like I'm gonna pull that dream out and like the zebras, like I'm just gonna imagine I'm in that dream, in that moment with the the zebras and the savannah and like feel what comes up for me. I'm gonna experience that moment. And take that into a feeling state and see what, um, what comes up for me. Like, because the dreams work with our emotions. And mm -hmm. so if we can bring the emotion into the dream, that um, can be really valuable. What is a dream? Ah, ooh. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Just like <laughs> a tiny little detail there. <laughs> Just, yeah. Okay. Uh, so the dream is, so here's this kind of science spiel. I have a little science spiel about dreams. I'm a scientist, you know, I am still a scientist, even though I don't do my astrophysics anymore. I am still a scientist. I'm from a family of scientists and I, I appreciate the scientific point of view. I do research as I go. And so what are dreams? I'm going to ask another question. What are dreams for? Mm. Like, why Why do we dream? Yeah. So one of the things that we can do is look at the history of dreams. It seems all humans dream, as far as we can tell, is extremely rare and bizarre exceptions. Um, and it can be fatal. If people are literally not dreaming, there's something really? called fatal familial insomnia, which people stop dreaming in their like 40s and 50s and it's it's fatal really so everybody dreams you say people say wow. oh i don't dream it's like no 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 you don't remember your dreams mm -hmm. that's very different you actually dreaming mm -hmm. is something very vital to the structure of our brain wow so humans dream mammals also seem to have this period of rapid eye move yeah. movement yeah. when they're sleeping and you know just look at your dog twitching yeah. and, <laughs> you know, yeah. and uh, and it seems like birds dream and maybe lizards really? dream. So there's something really, really important about dreaming. So dreaming has been around for at least 200 million years because that's how long the mammals have been around. Wow. So, you know, if it's the 
life is very competitive on this earth yeah, and as, a, yeah. as an animal, as a yeah. being. And so if it were not helpful, there would have to be, that would have been left behind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's something very vital about dreaming. And they, they've done various tests uh, about dreaming. Uh, and um, uh, there's, uh, there's, if they deprive a rat of dreaming, it's, it's as fatal to the rat as if you deprived it of food. Like, you know, very quickly, really? it's like, you know, so there is something incredibly important about dreaming and the, uh, what the, we seems to be that they help us, uh, with our emotional stability. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, they help us making decisions mm -hmm. and they particularly help us with ethical and moral dilemmas and that they can do these kind of studies by presenting questions before you go to sleep. And then in the morning, really? uh, seeing, seeing what has shifted. Comparing to if you ask somebody something in the morning and then 12 hours later, you ask them the same question. They haven't slept. They haven't dreamed and uh, and see what their reaction is. They can even sort it down to naps. Did you dream or not dream during the nap? It, if you did dream, you're much more likely to wake up happy. Whereas if you didn't dream, but you still slept. Right. You, you kind of wake up in the same mood you went to sleep with. This is truly fascinating. Mm -hmm. Talking about ethics. One of the themes of this show is, as you know, changes in the structures that we have in place as a culture and that we attend as individuals um, uh, that have guided our ethical decision-making, both individually and uh, from a social perspective, generally what is right and wrong. <laughs> and I find it fascinating that unexpectedly to my ears, ethics arose in this conversation. It goes as to the deeper themes around this show, which is, which I've sort of captured in the term of the silent revolution. Hmm. The myths that have guided us as a culture for a long time and that have helped us connect to each other as we try and find ethical grounding or spirituality or a search for purpose. These, the institutions that have been the vanguards of those are not holding up. And we're not just seeing this in the West. We're seeing it according to other scholars that have appeared on the show in, in places as diverse as the Middle East, South America, and Asia. And that presents massive opportunities uh, for people to be able to chart new and creative pathways for a sense of connection with their inner meaning, which, by the way, goes as to your own journey. Um, and we'll talk in more depth about that very shortly. But it also, I would imagine, goes as to what you just raised. Mm -hmm. Thinking about dreams as an eth as a pathway towards ethical decision making, do you also feel that dreams have anything approaching a spiritual component or any other sort of purpose that goes as to our fundamental connection with our humanity? Absolutely. Uh, like certainly, the uh, self awareness is a huge part of the path of spirituality, as I see it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Self awareness and becoming. Uh, aware of our uh, of what's important to us, the meaning and the purpose of our lives, and that the dreams are, are very powerful in helping us reframe our stories about ourselves, mm -hmm. and that we can tell the story about how I was a victim of that person and how this person messed me up, and 
Uh, and there may be like a certain cathartic value in holding that for a little while, but ultimately it's more powerful to claim your own role in the situation. Maybe there's some regret. And I'm saying that that doesn't mean that these situations should have happened, but maybe there's something that I also I learned and that I get to overcome the obstacles. Like, did I get out of that situation? Then I can see myself as the heroine of my own life story. And I'm like, yes, that was a terrible situation. It should never have happened. And I got out. And then you get to see, okay, I never want to get into that again. So then I, that's when you, the self-reflection of what was my part in that situation can come up. It's like, because I don't want to end up in that again. Like if we're in the same relationship and it feels like it's the same person over and over again, it's like, yeah. why do men always, you know, yeah, yeah. why do women always, it's like, well, look in the mirror. Maybe there's something here. And dreams are, are, are quite a mirror that reflect back to us, wow. our patterns. Wow. You mentioned a few minutes ago that you were a scientist. We talked about the specific scientific background that you had during the intro at the top of the hour. And you said that you are still a scientist. We talked a little bit about this in the pre-show, but I'm just going to run through a stereotype that I have. And I would love to just hear your commentary on it. As an astrophysicist. You are studying the cosmos itself. We talk about big picture stuff on this show, but at the end of the day, we're still talking about big picture within the context (laughs) of the planet Earth, which, as I'm sure you know more than most people, is on a cosmic scale so inconsequential it truly boggles the mind to contemplate. And that, by the way, I would assume as an astrophysicist and due to the nature of the relationship between space and time, not only are we inconsequential from a uh, from a size perspective in comparison to the universe, but mm-hmm. in terms of where we are within the universe's history. I mean, it's hard. I'm reading a book now about the history of mass extinctions on planet Earth. It's hard to even contemplate how small of a time frame any of us own on this planet. And it's hard to even contemplate how minuscule our own planet's existence is within the entire history of the universe itself. So we're truly talking about the things that you studying being on the most macro conceivable scale, so macro that the human mind can't even contemplate it. I would imagine, and you hear this a lot, Carl Sagan, for instance, if if I recall right, was kind of famous for taking this approach. He found joy and beauty in our ability as these microscopic human beings to appreciate and enjoy and, and have consciousness in the midst of the scale and size of the universe. Absolutely. A, is that actually, do you think people actually feel that way? And then B, B, do you feel that there is space for real spirituality as most non-Carl Saganists um, in the world experience it within a field like astrophysics? Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm glad we got back to spirituality because, the, you know, the the working out of our personality is just the beginning of the road when it comes to to dreams and that um i it was really a vital thing i was so unhappy for many many years yeah. i was suicidal i was functional but i was like life just sucked i just had to keep going but i was um very unhappy for a long time and so i started getting into the dreams because of that and um 
And yet, as I got into the dreams, it, I started meeting these figures in the dreams that were there to help me. Talk to me a little bit more about that. That's I, 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 don't, under, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand it either, I'll tell you. But I it sounds you, really cool. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, but it's like one of those things like I never expected to find spirituality in my dreams. But this is my primary spiritual practice right now is this dream work that I do. Oh. And, you know, there's something you talked about how insignificant we are as yeah. a human race and as individuals. Yeah. And that is so true. And yet there's something also incredibly vital about each individual mm -hmm. human being. And there's something mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, that, that our unique perspective will never come again. And that we mm. have this, each have this perspective. We each have something to offer the world. We each have something that we bring. When I'm working with other people, when I'm doing the dream work with clients, I'm astonished at how different people's points of view are. And I feel like I'm peering wow. in through a window, like, what's it like for you right. over here? It's, it's very, unique and there's something that there's something that seems to be wanting relationship with me is what I have discovered and other people I work with have found this too talk to us a little bit more about these guides explain like are they like people or avatars that appear in your dreams consistently that are pointing you in a different direction? And do you think they're tied to that latter thing that you just spoke about? I, I'm just going to say for lack of a better word, but correct me and maybe dive a little bit more deeply. Maybe, are they like avatars of some larger cosmic consciousness, do you think? Yeah. That's a beautiful way to put it. The way I, the av avatars of some larger cosmic consciousness, and um, I hopefully we'll get into some of that in a little bit. But I sometimes I the way I've spoken about them is as like the fingertips of God. That there's some kind mm. of like little bitty fingertip that gets into my dreams. That when I'm asleep and I don't have this critical thinking, this prefrontal cortex that has all this judgment and all these filters and when that part is asleep that we, we get to open up to something that's uh that's beyond what we would expect from day to day and that mm -hmm. it feels like there's some something is it a part of me is it a part of the larger consciousness that wants a relationship with me just so that 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 they can they can love me i mean it seems mm -hmm. kind of yeah, I'm squirming a little here. This is good. <laughs> yeah, but that's cool. I mean, you know, hey, mm -hmm. if we're it's not edgy. being honest on this show, then yep. what's the point of talking? It's, you and I have both come too yep. far in our lives not to yep. keep it real. Oh, my God. It's it's <laughs> it's edgy. And I just, uh, yeah. you know, I it is. Uh, and yet there is some sense. So in, in my dreams, they these guys are allies. I think of them as allies because sometimes they're not really showing me what to do so much as, as just appreciating me. They're like, yeah. oh, yeah, you're doing you're wonderful. Wow. Who just has you are. And I think of them as allies because they do kind of smooth the way. And they have like, they offer like these invitations. They don't say, well, you should go do that. But they might say, this is an opportunity you could do if you want. Yeah. Um, should I share a dream about that? I'm, you think I'm going to say no to that? The dreams are going to be the best part of this whole of this whole show. That's what everyone's waiting for. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know that's why the, the dreams are so beautiful because they're they powerfully encapsulate these these feelings in an image context, which we can really soak in. So I had this dream uh, about eight 
nine years ago when I was starting to recognize, starting to find my own voice, starting to open up to some of the love that is available for me in my dreams. And that, you know, I had a lot of years of like these gray, desolate castles or faceless wars. Carl Jung calls that the desert. There's a lot of time when we're going through this kind of grim, flat misery. But I was starting to get these kind of these dreams that would like pop up like, whoa, what is that? Oh, that was very cool. There's something like pearl. I call them the pearl dreams uh, because they just shine. And there was uh, one dream that I had where I'm standing on stage, brightly lit stage, people in the audience, and there's a man beside me playing the piano. And he's just playing these beautiful arpeggios and tunes, and he's just gazing into my eyes. He just loves me, and I'm standing there in an evening gown, and all these people in the audience, and I just feel so loved, like here I am, and I can be loved and appreciated exactly as I am. And so this is one of those allies here. And he's here and he's finally found a, a place where I can let him in, mm. where I can say, yes, it's, yes, you can love me. I can love myself. Mm. I can love you. That this love, it's like a, the armor opens up and then the love can go back and forth. And so I had this moment of connection with this man, which was just this beautiful wow. thing. I mean, I can feel even now I, I, I feel that, but there's more. The dream, that was all to the dream. But when I took it to the, my coach, because we have blind spots, it's hard to recognize no. what's going on in our own dreams. And when I, I took it to my coach, she's like, she helps me to like feel that moment of like, look how you're able to let the love in, in a way that's new. And, you know, so now there's no more story about you're unlovable because look, you're being loved and you're, and it's great, but there's more. If you look back at the scene and stand back, what do you see? It's like, I'm on stage. I'm in an evening gown. There's a piano play. Yeah, it's, yeah. I could be singing. It's like an invitation to be Billie Holiday or, you know, to to do this. And I love to sing. I ha- I love to sing. I, and I had, hadn't sung in a long time at that point. I, I wasn't in any choirs. and So there was something about finding my voice. Yeah. Because you know, she made this offering, and if it didn't make sense to me, I, I could have said, no, I, I don't think that. That's not it. But she said, it's like you're a singer on stage. And, and I'm like, wow. And I can feel that was true. See, it's part of the experience. I'm just experiencing the dream and seeing what comes of it. And this was the beginning of me starting to find my voice, which mm. I actually did literally sing. I wrote songs about my dreams and sang them in front of, you know, at retreats and in front of small groups. And, um, uh, and I, I also started to find my mm-hmm. voice like through my podcast. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and as, you know, now I'm a workshop leader and I, I'm writing a book and there's all these ways that the voice is something that this ally, he had it. It was an invitation. There was no shame though. It wasn't like, okay, I'm playing the piano. Are you going to start? Are you going to start? Mm-hmm. It was none of that. It was just like, I love you. You're perfect how you are. And it was up to me to notice the invitation that there is more, that there is, there's an opportunity here. I'm actually really blown away. (laughs) The richness that you were able to pull out of this dream and the multidimensional nature of Mm -hmm. what was embedded within it and the messages. That's, wow, that's astounding. Yeah. Uh, uh, Okay. 
Let me get out of myself. <laughs> I don't like it when I'm at a Let me speak for a minute then. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. <laughs> so the, the, that's the thing about dreams is that there are many, many layers. And, that, and you can, most of the dreams we ever have in our life are not remembered. We just, we don't. We sleep through them. We're asleep. How can we remember yeah. them? So, you know, I remember like four or five dreams a week. And that's a lot. But we have, all of us have four or five dreams Every night. Mm -hmm. So most of those dreams we don't remember and they're working just fine as evolution intended them to. Mm -hmm. They are doing working in the background. But I think that we, as we bring them into waking life, that we can deepen the work that they do. We can deep, deepen the, um, the magic that they open up in us by just treating the dream as a gift and trusting it, even if it's not pleasant. Right. You know, we can choose to say, okay, I'm not ready to work with that one yet. I'm not ready to look at that. That's too painful. But just knowing that these dreams are gifts and that they are, they are opening us up and they are helping us find our way forward. Powerful. Powerful. Now, I love circularity. Mm. And one of the things that you've talked about you mentioned explicitly a little while ago, you have had a sort of cycling underneath what you've just said, circles back to the very beginning of the season. And although this is being taped in November of 2021, this will be one of the final episodes, if not the finale of my season, because it's special and deserves that placement, but also because it circles back to the beginning. The very first guest we had on this season of the show was a neuroscientist who had a near-death experience and began to shift his life course and the nature of his own scientific inquiry into the study of consciousness and its relationship to the brain. And a lot of the language that he used to describe it, and by the way, other guests this season have raised uh, as they're in their own discussions of spirituality or, or whatever um, study that they are engaging in, echoes how you just described it, fingers of the consciousness touching our brains or our psyches. As a scientist, particularly as an astrophysicist, you were studying the tangible, the physical. And we have talked about spirituality and science and all of that. But I want to make it clear because consciousness is, as far as I understand it, and the brain obviously is a, is a, are concepts that are scientific in nature that in one way or another are related to the ways we actually experience the world. They are different than many myths and many dreams for that matter, in that those things are addressing circumstances that no one disputes actually exist. Or if they do exist, they're more on a symbolic existence or, or, or they're not actually in the day to day tangible that we can touch and, and have replicable experiments around that sort of thing. So when you talk about consciousness and when you say, I am still a scientist and you're talking about this thing called consciousness connecting into the brain through dreams, explain what you mean about mm -hmm. consciousness, explain what you mean about its separation from or connection to indivisibility or divisibility or its large largerness, for lack of a better word, um, but still part of the same 
as to the brain, because mm-hmm. we're talking about things that I think a lot of folks will have a hard time gr- grasping, or if they do, they may not be grasping it in the way that you're talking about. And so I want them to be clear. Right, right. Okay, so let's uh, start by by thinking about a baby. Why not a baby? Okay. So the baby is born. It has a brain. A brain works perfectly fine. But what does it pay? Doesn't know what to pay attention to. It just sees everything, everything, and feels mm-hmm. everything. And and a, one of the main tasks of growing in the early years is to learn what to pay attention to. So there is a theory which uh, which I think has a lot of validity. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm not a, a, a neuroscientist. There is a theory that what the main function of the brain is to be a filter. Mm-hmm. So it's not really to create thoughts or even to create consciousness. What if the brain is mostly to screen out the things that we're not paying attention mm-hmm. to, that we, mm-hmm. that we, so we can be focused on what we want to see? It's a very useful thing. So we can, we can get our food, we can do our jobs. We can pay attention to our loved ones, but we're missing out on huge ranges of what actually exists um, uh, literally physically in the moment. So like, I mean, you're driving, you don't pay attention to what's happening in the back seat. You know? So yeah. the, that's mm-hmm. a useful f- f- function of the brain. But what it means is, is that it's causing us to filter down on our experience. So what is, okay, so let me now shift to consciousness. One of the typical ways that people just think of consciousness is that it's the creation of the brain and that it's something that, um, that lower animals don't have. Right. And that as we get more and more advanced, right. and in particular as our brains get more advanced, that we develop this thing called consciousness where we have this awareness. And yet that's in contradiction to the idea that the brain is limiting our awareness. So there is a theory, uh, which I have heard called, there's other names for it, but the, what I have heard called is the sea of consciousness, like an ocean, mm-hmm. the sea of consciousness, which posits that matter arises second. And that first there was light, that first there is consciousness, mm-hmm. first there is an awareness, and that all physical matter arises out of this this awareness you know they're thinking of a dark matter or even dark right, energy right, right. it seems like there's a lot more energy in the universe than there is matter mm-hmm. so what if this energy is first and if this energy is the consciousness and so that you know a rock sticks out a tiny little bit and then an earthworm sticks out more a dog's more and so the human like kind of is like uh like a flower off of a tree like if the consciousness is is a kind of a tree that we are the branches and the flowers and the fruit of that consciousness and that humans have um, have maybe a greater share of consciousness than other creatures. So it's not that we create the consciousness inside of ourselves, but perhaps we we're able to be aware of a greater share of it. But when we sleep, a lot of the filtering mechanisms of our brain go quiescent, like the prefrontal cortex mm-hmm. is quiet. And so maybe then we can tap back into that sea of consciousness and we might like these allies that I meet in my dreams, maybe they're kind of representatives of this greater existence that, you know, that wants to have a relationship with me, or maybe I can astral travel and see some things or connect with people a thousand miles away. Fascinating. Uh, Two points that I want to raise in dialogue around that. First of all, it is true. And I'll, I'm sure I not speak. I don't speak just for myself. 
one of the great existential terrors I have is around the knowledge that our senses are limited. <laughs> we know from animal studies that there are other species that have either greater abilities to perceive within the senses that we have or have senses that we don't have altogether. And that indicates to me that there are all sorts of things going on in the universe we don't know. And when you think about that, we don't know then, taking that to another step, how limited our senses truly are. We could be walking around in anything and not knowing it because the senses, which are, I assume you would agree, are the mechanisms through which the filtering processes of the brain um, are, occur, which we absorb the information that it filters, may not be picking up on 90% of what's out there. Absolutely. I will also share a story that I have not shared on this podcast before, but there's something about you, Catherine. I just feel like I can, I feel like I can tell you everything. I'm going to tell you everything by the time we're done. <laughs> and that is, is, and I think the audience should know this because it goes as to um, a changed belief I have had about the, about altering, uh, and by altering A-L-T-A-R, uh, not altering as in change, altering our senses. I had in 2019 a cataract in my left eye. And I was with my husband on two occasions. One, we were driving down a street in L.A., and the other was in the Mall of America in Minnesota. In both situations, my husband needed me to look at something to my left. And I just turned my eye and looked and saw nothing. One, in one case, it was a light. In one case, it was a restaurant sign. Now, there was no break, apparently, in my vision. Everything looked clean. It's not like there was some big gaping hole in my sight. But when I looked, it was as if I was seeing, in the case of the restaurant, it was as though I was seeing a clean wall with nothing there. And he kept insisting that something was there. In the case of the light, we knew it had to be there because the structure of the streetlights were in there had to be a, a, a streetlight at this corner. And so even, and I kept saying, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. And he was insisting that it was finally I turned my head a little bit further and suddenly in both cases, the light and the sign magically appeared. So mm. honestly, there was the perception of continuity of vision that was totally made up. And that also goes as to what you're saying. Do you have any thoughts hearing that? Oh my God. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, where our, the focus of the eye is very narrow. Everything in the peripheral, we, we're kind of filling in. We get some fuzzy views of it. And I think that really, I love that, that you bring that up as a, as a kind of metaphor for, uh, what we, we are aware of, that we're yeah. aware of, of only the things we're aware of. There's yeah. all kinds of biases where we only, like what they call it confirmation bias, mm -hmm. where you only notice the data that aligns with what you already know. And it's, it's really, you know, it's, it's rampant in humanity. It's just, it is a human mm -hmm. fact. And it really can prevent us from seeing things that aren't in alignment with our beliefs. So it happens on a belief structure too, as well as on a, uh, on a literal physical level. So what you're saying here, I mean, I was getting goosebumps when you're talking about that because it's such a wonderful example of the, what, what uh, we call the blind spot. You know, yeah, that we all have our, was. We literally was the blind spot, but we all have emotional blind spots too. Mm -hmm. Like our partner might say something like, you keep doing that. And you're like, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. And it's very true. I literally don't know what he's talking about because that's in my blind spot. Right. 
But this is one reason that we can help each other. This is one reason why community is so important. In fact, I woke up this morning uh, thinking about community. Uh, it was a, there was a dream moment um, about that. And there's some way that we can we can help each other and provide, you know, fill in the blind spots uh, for each other. And I think, it, you know, I, I've just found myself thinking about like religion. In the old days, there was a way that that was kind of a community, but it's all yeah. focused in one way. And now we're in the situation where we want, how we're creating our own communities uh, by, by choosing our our beloveds by choosing our um, our groups that we want to be with, and and it's something to be aware of. To think of diversity uh, in in all contexts, you know, religious, wow. political, racial, gender, because anything if we get too one track in any direction, then we won't um, we won't we'll all have the same blind spot, and then we're all uniquely blind to that one thing. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to or watch this incredible episode with the one and only Catherine Bell. This part is over, but she's coming back for another ride with us down the Purpose Highway during the next episode. And trust me, it's only getting better from here. See you next time for another trip down the Purpose Highway. When you're racing down the Purpose Highway, we want to make sure you're healthy and happy every step of the way. That's why we're proud to partner with It's Nola, 21st century plant-based healthy granola snack bites made with real ingredients and audacious flavor. It's Nola crafts small batch hand-rolled granola balls that are vegan, gluten-free, and naturally low in sugar. It's Nola's delightful bites come in three flavors. Luscious cranberry coconut, sassy mango masala, and dark, decadent, chewy chocolate. It's Nola is available to both individual customers and for wholesale accounts at itsnola.com. That's I-T-S-N-O-L-A.com. Guests on this show are already enjoying this delicious snack. Check out It's Nola's website for yourself and find out how good it is.